Hi, I'm Kyle Corbwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this bonus episode, we hear from Paul Murphy, investigations editor of the Financial Times. He sat down with Richard Hunter on the Interactive Investor YouTube channel to talk about financial scandals and how he and his team uncover them. One of Paul's most notable successes was his involvement in the exposure of Wirecard, which subsequently became the subject of a Netflix documentary called Scandal Bringing Down Wirecard. Perhaps unsurprisingly, with the market turmoil of recent months and years, Paul believes his team will be kept busy for quite some time to come. It's a fascinating listen, so over to you, Richard. Quite the CV. Perhaps we could start with uh, Wirecard, a quite interesting story of, of subterfuge and scandal. Um, the story was uncovered by your colleague Dan McCrum, uh, with you becoming increasingly involved directly as the editor. Could you briefly sum summarise the background of Wirecard for us? Sure, yes. I mean, Dan, um, my colleague Dan McCrum, he, um, he alighted on Wirecard as a potential fraud all the way back in 2014. Um, but it was an accounting story, all right? And accounting stories are actually very difficult to tell through a newspaper format because we have to kind of, um, you know, when we're writing, we have to be, be understood by a very broad readership. Most people don't understand accounting. So I became involved with Dan early on, helping him, you know, get this story out. And... Um, we basically started with a series of blog posts asking questions about Wirecard's business model that were published on FT Alphaville. And it was the company's response to those early articles which told us that something was deeply amiss here, that we had to dig deeper. And, um, well, to be frank, in, you know, in Dan's case, it became an obsession of his. And I was just working with him as his editor, basically helping him get this story out. That's how it initially started. It then snowballed um, around um, in the autumn of 2018. You're right. Dan had already written about maybe 30 or 40 different articles on this company. But suddenly, in, in the autumn of 2018, we got word that we had a whistleblower in Singapore. Dan, we put Dan on a plane immediately, and he came back with the equivalent of an actual truckload of documentation. I mean, it's actually 80 gigabytes of internal documents from Wirecard. We put Dan in um, a separate room, uh, working on a, a so-called air-gapped computer so that he could not be hacked. And he spent several weeks actually going through that material. And at the end of those kind of six or seven weeks, we knew for sure that this was a criminal enterprise. And it was then just a matter of how we took it down. Wow. And it's true to say that uh, during the course of the investigations, you faced hacking, sting operations and criminal complaints after breaking the story. It was quite an extraordinary um, situation, actually, because, yes, kind of um, Wirecard threw everything at us. You know, there were illegal attacks. We were kind of followed. We were, you know, we had kind of huge amounts of kind of online abuse. Um, but what was bizarre from our perspective is that we were putting evidence in front of the readers that this was a fraud, okay? And um, 
Nobody in the German establishment, including the German media, believed us. They believed the Wirecard story, which was that the idea that this was all fabricated evidence and that we were working in cahoots with short sellers and somehow being kind of, um, you know, compensated for this. It was quite bizarre because, you know, we were looking, we were kind of looking at, you know, other big, well-established German newspapers like Handelsblatt, uh, thinking, hang on, you must know the culture and the processes that a newspaper like the FT has. We don't publish material like this lightly. You know, there, there are all sorts of checks and balances and legal checks and, you know, editors. And in this case, um, you know, the Wirecard um, stories, which were so powerful um, and so, you know, heavy, um, they were being line edited by the editor at that time, Lionel Barber. And, you know, the, the, the idea that this was all just made up, that Dan McCrum was being kind of left to go wild writing this stuff was kind of quite bizarre from our perspective. Obviously, Wirecard had quite an impact externally. Was there much of an impact culturally, for example, internally at the Financial Times as, as this story was breaking? Um, very much so. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's had the effect of kind of um, encouraging reporters across the FT newsroom to be more combative in their reporting. And um, that's really quite significant for the FT, which as an institution, you know, whatever it's kind of, uh, it's about 130 years old, and it, it, its history is very much as, um, as a journal of record focused on the city of London. You know, that's, that's its um, origins. And it, historically, it had, it had always been very cautious about basically criticizing institutions and individuals. Uh, it, it, it was wary of combative journalism. You know, it saw itself as a journal of record. And um, that's changed progressively, I guess, over the past decade. You know, the, the previous editor, Lionel Barber, as he got deeper and deeper into his editorship, he, you know, he was ready to take on more risk, essentially. And um, under Ruler Khalif, the new editor, um, we've had to do it because, you know, the, 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 that's the nature of the story, that's the nature of the world, the kind of, um, uh, and, you know, it, it's certainly the case that the Ukraine war has accelerated that because it's needed, um, you know, we've needed to put our reporters in, you know, on the front line in quite dangerous places. And, you know, a lot of work has been done in, in the background on, say, Russian sanctions, on oligarchs, on sanctions evasion, on the whole commodity space, how things are moving there. And, um, it, it's needed. It's needed the FT to be much more kind of um, agile, and dare I say it, more aggressive. Um, you know, there's also there's also you know kind of if you go back say ten or fifteen years ago, people used to say that inve investigative journalism was dead, that it was just too expensive for newspapers to pursue. And it is expensive, you know, it's, um, you know, I have, um, you know, members of my team will often spend three, six, nine months looking at something and, you know, the costs rack up. 
But um, two things um, have happened. One, there's, you know, kind of, there's a belated understanding amongst, you know, kind of newspaper owners, and it's not just about the FT, you know, it's the same for the New York Times, the Guardian, Sunday Times, whoever, that if you're going to charge subscriptions and quite high prices, then you, then you have to deliver real visible value. And if you, if you go and look at, say, an FT long-form investigative piece, and you go and read the comments at the bottom of that story, you'll see loads of people saying, thank you, this is why I subscribe to the FT, okay? Now, do the economics of that match up? I don't know. Um, that's, you know, that's above my pay, pay grade. But um, the, other th the other factor I'd mention is that you have, over recent years, you've had this, this new um, breed of younger, young um, reporter coming into the media industry, even though the kind of pay is terrible, they still want to be journalists and they tend to be much more kind of um, um, driven and, um, uh, you know, they, they actually want to change things. And so, you know, so, you know, my team at the FT, you know, we have a queue of youngsters across the newsroom who want to get on that team or actually just want to do that sort of journalism. And so my job actually ends up as kind of wearing two hats. I kind of, I work with my direct team, uh, about six or seven of us, and um, quite separately, I do a kind of like outreach work, which is across the newsroom when people are doing um, deeper reporting and and it's, it's tougher reporting and it has kind of legal problems or privacy problems, um, you know, I work with them directly to support them. And that works quite seamlessly at a place like the FT, which is, you know, it's a very kind of collegiate culture. It's, um, it's quite different from, you know, I used to work at The Guardian and before that The Telegraph, and those were very different places. Yeah. Um, much more kind of uh, Fleet Streety, kind of um, um, quite vicious politics, and that the FT is is different. It's um, you know it's very much it very much sees itself as a global newspaper, and the culture is quite bookish, and so there's yeah we have a you know the investigative team have a good relationship with the rest of the newsroom. We're not we're not hidden away in some bunker. We sit in the main newsroom and we talk to everybody else. Sure, and indeed uh, another. Uh, story I uncovered, which caused quite a stir at the time, was the President's Club affair. Could you remind us what uh, what was going Whoa, on there? Yes, that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so the background to the President's Club is that um, I had um, I'd been given this job as you know head of investigations, and I was abroad on holiday uh, in Africa, uh, sitting there thinking, how the hell am I going to do this job? And this woman rang me up who I hadn't from the newsroom that I hadn't spoken to before, a woman called Madison Marriage. And she said that she had this story and she was struggling to get any traction with it from any of the news desks at the FT because people were saying that this was not an FT story. And she thought it was. And I said, well, what's the story? And she said, well, for the past 30 years, there's been a secret dinner held at the Dorchester each year 
where um, 300 men from finance, property, and advertising um, are serviced by 160 uh, hostesses in skimpy dresses. And apparently there is a lot of very bad behavior that happens. And I said, what, this has been happening for 30 years. And I thought for a moment, I've been a journalist for 30 years, I'm a city journalist for 30 years, I don't know about this. I said, this is bloody dynamite, Madison. Um, I said, of course it's a story. But um, to do the story, it meant that we had to put Madison undercover. She had to go in um, with, um, she had to go in as a hostess. She had to get herself hired for that event. And um, that was the first time the FT had done actual undercover work. And we had to set up a system where we had eyes on the Dorchester from all angles. You know, we didn't know who was going to be at that dinner. Um, and so we had Madison and also another woman undercover as hostesses that were um, mic'd up with these tiny little microphones that I bought from a guy in Lithuania. Um, we had pinhole cameras on myself and another colleague, Barney. We had a long lens paparazzi style photographers in, um, in Hyde Park. Um, we had an operational center at the Intercontinental and we, we, we zoomed in on the Dorchester and um, yeah, we got the details. And, um, but it was a very, very difficult story because, um, you know, we had clear evidence of bad behavior. You know, this was a classic Me Too story and, and getting it through the FT system was tricky. Uh, you know, I, I had to say, you've got to, you know, I, I, I was saying to kind of senior editors at the time, you, you know, you've got to realize how, um, how seriously irritated young professional women are that these sorts of events still happen. You know, they're from another era, stop it. Um, but um, what we were doing there is that we were, you know, going into a situation, we were about to kind of reveal the names of scores of very rich men, all of whom are kind of, you know, lawyered up to the kind of hilt. And um, that was quite tricky and quite a lot of fun. But um, we, you know, we published and the story went you know, into orbit um, for a short, for, you know, for about a couple of weeks that yep. year. Um, it was the only thing people were talking about. Um, and I must say, the post bag at the FT, they hated it. <laughs> you know, we had a whole series of new readers who said, brilliant, and thank goodness that the FT have done this. And I had women across the newsroom coming up to me saying, thank you, thank you for helping Madison get this story over the line. Um, but a lot of our older male readers hated us for it and, and said this is the end of the FT, but we're still here. And the pres President's Club dinner? Well, it's gone, you know, it's, um, it, it disappeared. You know, lots of people said, oh, it's terrible, you've destroyed this charity. Uh, no, this was a boy, boy's big night out with a small charity attached. And, you know, it's, we, we could never print the absolute detail of what was happening at that night, but trust me on that, you know, read between the lines. Yeah. The behavior was unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. Um, and um, yeah, it's gone. So, so 
when you go into a story or investigation such as Wirecard, taking on effectively a corporate giant, how much can you prepare yourself for what might follow? It's uh, it comes to, you, you work on different levels. Um, you know the the first one is legal. Okay, um, you you know um, you know the fact is almost every story we tackle now in terms of like kind of um, investigative work has um, legal pushback in some way. It might be our own legal team who's saying, uh-uh, no, you know, this breaches privacy, this breaches confidentiality, you know, the, the subject matter will quite easily get an injunction here, and it's something we want to avoid. You know, we don't want the courts to stop us. Um, so you first you kind of, you have your internal um, uh, legal considerations. Then you have your external legal considerations. You have to work out what, you know, we had to work out how Wirecard were going to respond to what we were publishing. Um, and that, you know, that was quite bizarre because, you know, what they did was they turned around and they convinced the kind of Munich prosecutor that Dan and also uh, another colleague, um, Stefania Palmer, were actually criminals. And, and, and the Munich authorities launched a criminal investigation uh, of those two, which was which is something you can't really prepare for. Um, you also obviously have to think of security. You know, if, I, if I'm frank, before we, we tackled Wirecard, we were really a little bit slack in terms of our kind of, um, you know, our cybersecurity, our, our, our technological kind of um, uh, um, protections. And we had to learn quickly. Um, you know, we operated on the basis that um, Wirecard did have access to things like our emails. Um, you know, we knew that they had some kind of shady connections with, um, you know, Secret Service in Austria, possibly Russia. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's quite draining because you have to do things like, you know, every meeting we have, we have to leave phones outside. We, you know, we, you do have to check that you're not being followed when you're kind of moving around London. Um, it's quite draining. And also, I think it does genuinely have an effect on your families, actually. As a journalist, it's quite exciting, all right? Um, you know, lots of people have said, oh, it must have been terrible. You're being kind of surveilled and what have you. Well, actually, you know, it was an exciting story. We knew we were right. We knew this was a criminal enterprise, and it was just a matter of time before, um, before we cracked it. Um, but, you know, I know for Dan's family, my own family, you know, everybody gets paranoid and you kind of worry about kind of, you know, whether you're being kind of monitored at home, uh, you know, children, etc. So, yeah, it's a bit draining. Although, of course, you have indicated of in the end. I'd like to move on, if I may, to FT Alphaville, which you were founding editor for in 2006. The live market slot very much and very quickly became a go-to for city professionals, let alone new readers, um, as well as interested investors, of course. Can you tell me what the latest is on, on Alphaville? Well, Alphaville, I'm very proud of Alphaville. You know, we had, it was, um, you know, it was great fun to work on Alphaville, all right? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very flexible media platform. Um, that allows you to move very quickly and it's especially um, it's a it's it's a brilliant outlet when events are moving very quickly as they are at the moment yeah. um, 
And Alphaville has always been, it's, it's reinvented, almost reinvents itself every few years, depending on the, the team who are working on it. You know, so I was the first editor. Uh, Neil Hume uh, took over from me, who you may know Neil. Uh, it was then Isabella Kaminska. Uh, Izzy left um, just over a year ago. And uh, Robin Wigglesworth, uh, one of our most senior kind of and experienced investment correspondents, um, uh, has taken over quite recently, and he's remolding it around his new team. So um, it's quite exciting days for Alphaville because what uh, what, what Alphaville is able to do um, is, whereas the the broad FT newspaper, as I mentioned earlier, has to cater to this very broad readership, Alphaville is able to say, look, we are read by market professionals and so we you know we can we can use shorthand you know we we know that you know what a kind of um um you know a, a collateralized debt obligation is or whatever the kind of slight technicality is you know alphaville doesn't have to hang around and explain yeah. it to you it can go straight directly to the story um you know it's it you know, the team on Alphaville know that they're writing for professionals and that those professionals actually know much more about any given subject than the, than the reporter does. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a healthy kind of, that's a, a healthy balance. I yeah, think, absolutely. You know. um, turning back to your day job as an investi investigations editor at the FT, um, Wirecard has obviously shown you're not restricted to the UK in terms of your investigations. You mentioned Singapore earlier. Are there other jurisdictions you're currently investigating? Um, well, our focus is global and, you know, when we move with the stories. Um, when we were covering Wirecard, as it was in its kind of last days and facing collapse, you know, you know, I used to have chats with the team and saying, look, you know, this has been an amazing story. This is big, but this will not be the biggest collapse of this cycle. You know, I've, um, you know, we've had whatever, 12, 13 years of um, effectively free money. And finally, after all these kind of years, the tide is eventually going out. And I expect us to see some truly colossal frauds and um, crises. Um, we're already seeing that right now. We've seen it over the past year. We saw FTX collapse. What was that? Thirty-two billion. I mean, you know, um, you know. Recently, I've been watching the gold on oh, BBC yeah. TV yeah. about the Briggs Max robbery in mm. the eighties, and, yeah. and what was that? Twenty-six million dollars. At the time, that was a lot of money. But the kind of, you know, the decimal points have shifted like kind of three, three or four kind of um, points. Um, I mean, we, we're talking, you know, billions. Yeah. Um, and we look at some of the kind of, um, some companies, you know, I don't, I don't want to name some of them sure. because we're kind of, we're still looking at it. But, you know, if you look at areas, you know, across the Middle East, across kind of Asia, um, there are some truly um, kind of fantastical valuations attached to some businesses. And you have to look at these. You have to see whether there's actually anything there. Um, the crypto world, um, it's, you know, it, it, 
that's a world where people have, have got used to just kind of inventing value out of thin air. And um, where that leads us, I don't know. Well, actually, I kind of do know where it leads is to, you know, a lot of kind of naive and innocent people yeah. um, losing their money. And I wanted to pick up on themes as opposed to jurisdictions. You mentioned uh, crypto. They're also short sellers tend to get something of a bad press. Um, are those areas of interest for you? Um, short sellers have, have always fascinated me. I mean, my, my deep background is actually very much as an equity market reporter. And, you know, from my earliest days as a journalist, um, I used to kind of you know, look to kind of develop and maintain good contacts with short sellers for, for a very simple reason. Well, no, a few reasons. One, they tend to be interesting characters, all right? They can tend to be oddballs, um, obsessive. But crucially, a short seller will tend, in my experience, will tend to do much, much deeper research on their speculative investments than a regular long focused analyst and that's for a simple reason that they're you know if you're buying a stock for whatever ten ten dollars you can only lose ten dollars but if you're shorting a stock at ten dollars your um, your potential downside is in, is unlimited you know the stock can go to the moon and it does you know you see you know you you know kind of you see how the kind of you know um, uh, you know kind of short focus funds say betting against Tesla have just been annihilated um, you know there's many examples of that it's been a, for short sellers you know this 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 zero interest rate era has been terrifyingly bad you know it's been really really tough for them and suddenly they're um, it's suddenly it's their moment we're seeing that with Hindenburg at the moment who targeted Adani in um, in India recently and who are now targeting um, Square or Block as it's now known uh, Jack Dorsey's um, entity um, at the same time journalistically we have to be careful because um, we can easily be seen as being kind of um, in cahoots or encouraging short sellers um, and so the, the relationship it, on a kind of quite technical level can be very tricky because you know if you're a short seller you know you've identified your target you've set up all your trades you're short your book position is very clear and the tendency if the a newspaper like the ft just comes along and reports um what you've you know what you've discovered at that moment you're essentially you know all other things being equal you know the short seller is going to be closing their position and you just um you, you're just um, enabling a, a transfer of value from, you know, your readers, FT readers, subscribers, to the short sellers, yeah. including their position. Um, and that's something we grapple with. Um, our solution is either to work with the short seller from a very early stage when they're just kind of probing a potential target, as we did with Wirecard. You know, Dan was talking to shorts who were focused on Wirecard all the way back in 2014, 2015. Um, um, or 
um, we wait um, until somebody like Hindenburg has um, published their full reports, and then we put a lot of resource into going to kind of verify their research. Because um, if they're right, then it's not just a kind of one or two days story, it's something that will um, develop into something much bigger. Now finally, Paul, uh, obviously Wirecard did reveal, thanks very much in part to you and your team, that the Emperor had no clothes, um, despite some eye-watering market valuations at the time. Will there be others, do you think? Almost certainly. Um, you know, as I've said, the um, you know we spent such a long period in this um, in this extraordinary era of zero interest rates. You know, it's you know I talked to my team about the fact that you know you had whatever twelve years of free money. It's also a time when you've had a massive tech bubble, and it's also an era where we've seen genuine. Um, internationalization, just not of capital, but also of management teams. You know, nobody bats an eyelid if you have, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, a group of Swiss entrepreneurs listed on NASDAQ with assets somewhere else. Um, from the perspective as a financial journalist, all of that just adds up to fraud. And so, yes, I expect us to be very, very busy over the next kind of year or two. Thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. And if you get a chance, leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. You can join the conversation, ask questions, and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email, which is otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, which is ii.co.uk.